0: A reading from Ephesians 1, 3-14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he who chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray.
1: God, it is uh, so good to be reminded from the book of Ephesians of your great, unfathomable love for your people. that you would adopt us as your sons and daughters, that you would make us very children of God. And so we thank you for that, and we say, along with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God, as we approach your word this morning, we do ask that you would be present with us as we enter into this Christmas season. God, that we would pursue you, that we would find true and everlasting joy in you and not in the things of this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, As we've mentioned a couple times already, uh, Advent officially began uh, last week, um, and uh, if we look at things from a cultural perspective, Well, from a church perspective, Advent kind of kicks off the Christmas season as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. Uh, But from a cultural perspective, uh, Christmas has probably been going on for a little bit longer than that, at least since the end of Thanksgiving, where it becomes culturally acceptable to start listening to Christmas music. Uh, If you work in retail, it's probably been even longer than that. I discovered this the hard way. Yesterday, I made the most foolish decision of my life. I decided to bring my two toddlers to Hobby Lobby by myself. That was uh, just, just a nightmare. Um, that said, it is uh, an unbelievably fun time for our family. Uh, like I said, two toddlers, they are uh, just getting into that stage of life where they fully understand or fully grasp uh, that Christmas is coming, the excitement that comes with Christmas. And uh, so a couple examples of that. We'll be driving through town, and we'll see uh, some houses with, with Christmas lights up, and the, the kids will say, hey, Dad, look, it's a Christmas house. And uh, the other day, I was at well, uh, I was at Menards, and I just ran to grab a couple of few uh, a couple of things, including light bulbs, regular run-of-the-mill 60-watt light bulbs. And I come home, and my son, my three-year-old, opens up the bag, sees light bulbs, and he says, "Hey, Dad, it's time for us to be a Christmas house now, too, because you bought light bulbs for us." Every single day, we are asked by our kids, "Is it Christmas yet?" Every single day, we see this joy and this uh, just this love for the Christmas season. They got so excited about decorating our Christmas tree, we actually decided to decorate it again last night. It is, a, it is a, an infectious time for our family. We are just uh, reveling in the joy. Uh, just one example is all that I need to, to show you how uh, infectious this time is. I hate wrapping Christmas presents. I'm terrible at wrapping Christmas presents. I've wrapped all of our Christmas presents and had them done for a week and a half. This is something that, uh, it just is an exciting time of year for us, and yet, while it's an exciting time of year, as we turn our eyes toward Christmas, I am reminded time and time again that we find ourselves in a battle. Christmas is a battle, it is a, a battle against this temptation to rob Christmas of all of its miracle, to, to rob Christmas of all, all its true wonder, all of its true beauty, all of its true joy, and honestly to replace it with something that is just commercialized, to replace it with something that's just a cheap holiday knockoff. And we might find ourselves talking about the Christmas story with kids, with, with one another, but it can quickly transition from tradition into traditionalism, uh, where we're marveling at the incarnation, and all of a sudden we find ourselves marveling at how many presents we have underneath the tree. And so this morning, as we begin this series, this short series on the book of Ephesians to prepare our hearts for Christmas, I want us to just uh, pause and, and, and consider the significance of the book of Ephesians. I think Ephesians, more than really any other book in the Bible, lifts our eyes, forces our hearts to go skyward to the incredible beauty and glory of the gospel, not just throughout all of human history, but indeed the the beauty of the gospel from the very beginning, before time itself existed, until the end of time immemorial. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a famous uh, British preacher in the 20th century, he said this about the book of Ephesians, If Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, then Ephesians is the most sublime and majestic expression of the gospel. It is difficult to speak of Ephesians in a controlled manner because of its greatness and its majesty. If you were paying attention with uh, Jake's reading of the beginning of this book just a few moments ago, you can see how it's an apt description of this book. Paul uses beautiful, powerful, cosmic language to describe the greatness of who God is, the greatness of what God has done for us in Christ, and how that should lead us to worship. And so for the next uh, couple weeks, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we're going to just look at a couple passages from this book. And I want you to ask yourself, as we're looking at this book, ask yourself this question. Is your Christmas too small? Is your Christmas too small? Is your view of Christmas too small? Is it too centered on gifts? Is it too centered on nostalgia? Is it too centered on family? And if your answer to any of those questions is yes, then your Christmas is too small. Another way of asking this question, when your thoughts turn to the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, his incarnation, God himself becoming flesh, does it inspire marvel? Does it lead you to to shudder as you pause and, and just consider the meaning of this moment, the climax of, and I'm not exaggerating here, the climax of all of time? Do you find it hard to put into words how amazing the thought that the rejected God of all of the universe had a plan from before time began to enter into his creation, to take on flesh in order to offer salvation, but more than that, to mend his ruined masterpiece to his original glory? If you find yourself saying, no, I, I, I don't really think of that when, I, when it comes to Christmas, then your Christmas is too small. I hope and pray that our time in Ephesians over these next few weeks will be a time uh, that, that really serve as an antidote to this small Christmas. You see, far more important than a Grinch whose heart is two sizes too small is a Christian who has too small of a view of Christmas. And so, as we look at this book this morning, uh, we're going to begin with this song of praise that, that Paul is beginning this letter to the Ephesians, and he bursts out into praise. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then from there, he goes on in the rest of the text to describe just a few different ways that Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, you see, Paul as he turns his heart, as he turns his mind to the gospel, he can't help but burst out in praise in worship. And I hope that that's something that we can also do as we consider the Christmas story as well. This text here at the beginning of Ephesians serves kind of as the uh, almost the uh, the purpose statement, or it helps us to understand the the entirety of this book. Ephesians one seven through ten really serve as the heart of Ephesians. It says this. These verses here tell us about the immeasurable riches that God has lavished upon you if you are in Christ. You see, Ephesians paints us this picture of a cosmic Christmas, this picture of a God who has a plan to save you, has a plan to save me, but he doesn't just stop there with saving you and me, but includes a plan from the beginning of eternity, past to make everything beautiful and glorious in his Son, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, Ephesians reminds us that any gospel or any Christmas that centers on you any Christmas that centers on me, other anything other than the incredible beauty and worth and majesty of God and his plan to make all things new is far too small. It's far too meaningless for us to celebrate. And so as we begin our time in this book this morning, I, I just want to adapt a popular cl- quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis had this sermon called Wait, The Weight of Glory. It's a beautiful sermon, and in it he says one of the most profound statements I, I've ever heard. And I just want to adapt this, uh, this quote to guide our time this morning as we uh, approach Christmas, honestly. So hear, the, uh, hear this from C.S. Lewis. Uh, this isn't his exact quote. I, I butcher it on, on purpose here. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of Christmas and the staggering nature of the lengths that God went to in order to save us from ourselves, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires at Christmas not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and material goods and ungraspable nostalgia when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This Christmas, don't be too easily pleased. Don't settle for filling yourself on junk food when there is a feast on the table, a feast that God has been preparing for eternity. In fact, if we were to sum up Uh, This text, focusing on Christmas this morning, I think you could put it this way. Christmas is the dawning of God's eternal plan for his eternal glory and our eternal joy. Christmas is the dawning of God's eternal plan for his eternal glory and our eternal joy. Christmas is all about, about joy, as we sang about earlier. It is about joy over how God has blessed us over and over and over again in the gospel. It is about joy centering on God and his act of restoring all of creation and the joy that he gets from that. The joy God receives from cleaning up his creation, making it beautiful once again, and putting a song in the mouth of all of creation to tell about the incredible story of God and how he has saved his people. You see, as this text declares, this is a focus on God who has blessed his people. People with every spiritual blessing, with blessings that are greater than every grand of, of, of grain of sand on earth, more numerous than every star in the sky. And as we look at this text, we're going to see that there are three overarching categories. That that Paul, as he says in in verse three, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He really tries to boil that down to three overarching categories of how we are blessed by God. In Christ, And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, these three categories of blessing for how we have been blessed by God. Let's jump into our text and consider these ways. The first one is found in verses 4 through 6. Uh, again, I want to start in verse 3 just for context here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The first unfathomable truth of God's blessing for us found in this passage is this. God has adopted us for his glory. God has adopted us for his glory. Paul praises God for this entire gospel story, but he doesn't just start with events that take place 2,000 years ago. He doesn't start with the words of the prophets, like what the McFarland's read to us earlier this morning. He doesn't start with the call of Abraham, this promise that God will give a blessing to all the nations. He doesn't even start with the story of Genesis, When after the fall, God promises redemption immediately after the fall. Paul goes even further back than that. He goes to a time before time itself existed, and he tells the Ephesians that God chose to make the Ephesian Christians the object of his love in eternity past. Why does God choose to love his people? Why is it that God chooses to love these people, the Ephesian Christians? Why does God choose to love us in eternity past? Paul, is, he seems to be making a number of parallels here between the church and Israel before it. Uh, if you look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'll see some of this. And notice the language of Deuteronomy 7, this text we're about to read, and how it parallels what Paul has written in Ephesians 1. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed your house from the house of slavery, from the house, or excuse me, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why is it that God has chosen to love his people? Why is it that, that, what is this reason for God's unfathomable love with his people as its object? According to Deuteronomy, The reason why God loves us is basically this. God is God. God is fully and freely God, and as such, he needs no other reason to love someone other than his own sovereign choice. He's God. He gets to set his love upon those whom he chooses. One of the age-old debates uh, of the church is what this election looks like, what this predestining in love, according to verse 5, what this looks like. Uh, And questions like, does this mean we don't have free will? Uh, What does this mean? How is it fair of God to choose some people and not others? And these are important questions. But notice that Paul doesn't focus on those questions. Paul instead is focusing on how we should respond and what the hope that this causes for us. He says that the eternal love of God this love for you is an immeasurable source of comfort, of confidence for you in times of doubt. When you doubt God's love, when you doubt God's presence, when you, are, you doubt whether God actually cares about you, we can look to the fact that God has chosen to love you. Charles Spurgeon, who's a preacher in England in the 1800s, he writes this, I'm sure he would not love me so long and then leave off loving me. If he intended to be tired of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a a love as deep as hell and as unutterable as the grave, if he had not given his whole heart to me and he had long time enough to consider it, he knew what I would be. But I am his choice and there is an end of it. And unworthy as I am, it is not mine to grumble if he is contented with me and he is contented with me. He must be contented with me, for he has known me long enough to know my faults. He knew me before I knew myself. He knew me before I was myself. You see, before time began, God chose to love you. God chose to love you. And what's more, in verse 5, we see the end goal of this love, and that is adoption. Notice how uh, the New American Standard version. translates verse 5. I think this is a helpful way of looking at this text. It says this, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. You see, from time immemorial in the past, it was God's kind intention. It was God's good pleasure. It brought God joy to bring you into his family to make you a full heir with his son, Jesus Christ. Notice Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. He says, this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8 tells us that we have been adopted by a God who knew our shortcomings, a God who knew our evil, who knew our rebellion against him, and nevertheless signed the adoption papers with his own son's blood. One preacher says it this way, a man when he adopts a child sometimes is moved to do so by his or her her extraordinary beauty, or at other times by his or her intelligent manners and winning disposition, but when God passed by the field in which we were lying, there was no beauty in us that could compel him to adopt us. On the contrary, we were everything that was repulsive, and if he had said when he passed by, you are cursed, be lost forever, it would have been nothing but what we might have expected from a God who had been so long provoked and whose majesty had been so terribly insulted. But no, he found a terribly rebellious child, a filthy, frightful child, and he took him to his bosom and said, sinful though you may be, you are beautiful in my eyes through my son Jesus. Unworthy though you may be, yet I cover you with his robe, and in your brother's garments I accept you. And taking all of us, unholy and unclean, just as we were, he took us to be his, his children forever. As we begin to look at Christmas we are reminded that God has brought us into his family at great cost to himself. As we stand here at the beginning of Christmas and this Christmas season, how can we do anything but declare with the Apostle Paul when he starts here and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you notice at the end of this first section, at the end of verse 6, he ends with the the purpose of God's love for us. At the end of verse 6, it tells us to the praise of his glorious grace. God has a a purpose with showing us love, and that love certainly has our joy in mind, but it also has God's glory in mind. God desires for himself to receive glory and honor and praise for what he has done for us, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has freely given us in the beloved. Our second statement of blessing is found in the next section, starting in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Notice that the end of this section, the end of verse 12, mirrors the end of verse 6. Verse 6, Paul is talking about this choosing or this love that God bestows upon us to to adopt us and has this idea of the praise of God's glorious grace. And now we see here at the end of verse 12, this this other focus or the second focus is on God's glory. The unending aim of God's work on your behalf is to inspire praise in your hearts, to inspire worship in your hearts. God is not going to stop. God will not stop until all of creation joins their voices into the song of praise to their king. You see, these verses reveal to us that not only has God adopted us, as we saw earlier, but our second one is this, that God has also freed us for his glory. God has also freed us for his glory. Verse 7 declares the great riches of God's grace and how they are being poured out on us through the blood of Christ. More specifically, he says that we have redemption through his blood. Now, this word redemption, it might be one of the most Christian words ever. We use it all the time in the church. We use it to refer to salvation. We use it to refer to deliverance. And that is indeed what is meant. But there's a special nuance to this word redemption that means far more than just salvation, far more than just deliverance, a specific focus of deliverance. And if we don't understand that, then we'll miss out on the specific work of Christ that Paul has in mind here, what he is focusing on. Redemption in ancient times was an economic term. It still is an economic term in some sense. It was almost exclusively in the first century used for a slave who had saved up enough money so that way they could buy their own freedom from their owner. When they had enough money, they would pay the ransom price and they would bring this money to their owner and then they would be redeemed. It would be freed from their slavery, and they would be able to live how they chose to live. So consider what Paul is saying here in these verses. When he says that we have redemption through his blood, he is insinuating that we are slaves, that we are unable to free ourselves. The question is, well, what has enslaved us? If we look at the, the next phrase in this verse, uh, he tells us the answer. Paul tells us that we have redemption through his blood and then he, he, he parallels that with this phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses or the forgiveness of sins. Well, Paul is making the same point here that he makes in Romans chapter six. Romans six, he tells us that we were once slaves to sin and now we have been freed through Jesus. Romans six says this, but thanks be to God That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is an astounding claim. What Paul is saying here is an astounding claim, and if we let it sink deep into our hearts, into the very core of our being, it's going to change the trajectory of our lives. Paul is telling us here, and in fact, the rest of the Bible tells us this truth. It claims that those who are separated from Christ, those who are not in Christ, are addicted to sin. They are slaves, they are prisoners, they are unable to free themselves from the hellbound predicament on which they find themselves in. They are helpless captives to sin. They are unable to free themselves. And the only question that Paul asks is who is able to free them, who is able to free us from this hell of life? And he tells us only Jesus Christ who brings redemption through his blood. You see, Jesus comes to bring freedom for slaves. And as we get ready for Christmas, as we stand ready to celebrate Christmas, we celebrate this incredible gift that God so desired, to the freedom of his creation, that he paid the price for that freedom with the blood of his son. But that's not all. As Paul points out in this section, redemption, this freedom from slavery to sin, is not just something for you, it's not just something for me, it's actually for all of creation, You see, not only did God choose to love you from time immemorial, but he also had a plan that centered on Christ to redeem all of creation. Every single blade of grass, every grain of sand, every fish in the sea, every mountain peak, every lush valley, all of them will be restored to and beyond their former glory by Christ. As as Albert Walters puts in his book, Creation Regained, God hangs on to his fallen creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. Humankind, which has botched its original mandate and the whole creation along with it, is given a second chance in Christ. We are reinstated as God's managers on earth. The original good creation is to be restored. It's with this in mind that Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we keep this in mind, how could we ever become bored with the story of Christmas? How could we ever be distracted from the true story of Christmas? In the Christ child, we see the pinnacle of God's plan to save not just you, not just me, but all of creation to liberate everything in creation from its slavery to sin. All of it found in Christ. But this freedom from slavery doesn't just end there. We see that it pleases God. It pleases God to give those who have been freed by Jesus the very inheritance that Jesus earned. From slaves and enemies to full heirs of God. It's a small wonder why Paul cries out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has indeed blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul closes his song with one final blessing. If you look at verse 13 and verse 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The final truth of this passage is that God has guaranteed us eternity for His glory. God has guaranteed us eternity for His glory. You see here, Paul gives us a glimpse of what takes place when a person believes in the gospel. When a person places their trust in Christ for salvation, God sends his spirit, and that spirit dwells within them. Now, in addition to all that the spirit does for the life of the believer, the spirit is also a guarantee of their future eternity with God. I want to just draw attention to two words that are found in this text, Uh, just a a short bit of time here. The first one is in verse 13, It's this word, sealed. This word sealed. It's used to describe what takes place when the spirit dwells within the believer. Now, in the ancient world, seals were used as the primary way to describe or declare ownership. And so, for those who are wealthy, every possession that they owned that was of value, they would mark it with their seal. They would place their seal on it, and that was a way of saying that this is mine. I am the owner of this. This is my possession. So, what does it mean here that the believer is sealed with the spirit when they come to faith? What does it mean, if you are a Christian, that you are sealed with the Spirit? Well, here we see that the gift of the Spirit in the believer's life is a declaration of God's ownership. To use our language from earlier in this text, it is a declaration that God has fully adopted you into his family. We read from Romans 8 earlier, and it says the exact same thing. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So, this word sealed is a declaration that we are God's children. It is a guarantee that we are God's, and no one can say anything about it. The second word I want to look at is that word guarantee in verse 14. And you notice in verse 14 it says that uh, this is the guarantee of our salvation or our possession of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This word guarantee in verse 14 literally means down payment. It is the this gift of the Spirit given to the believer for many reasons, but one of the reasons that we see here is the reason God has given us the Spirit is for assurance that there is more to come. There is more to come. That there is a just a little taste. This little glimpse of the new life that we have through the the Spirit of what is to come for us. It is the proof positive that God has committed himself to you. God is not going to back out of his adoption of you. His Spirit in your life is the guarantee that you will spend eternity with him for his glory, and your eternal joy. One author from the 1800s puts it this way, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, if you have been renewed in heart, you are one of the Lord's people. And there is a place reserved for you, a crown laid up for you, a harp specially provided for you. No one else shall have your portion. It is reserved in heaven for you, and you shall have it before long." For there shall be no vacant thrones in glory when all the chosen are gathered in. Paul closes this song with the same refrain that he's used throughout. He says, to the praise of his glory. And as we approach Christmas this year, what an appropriate way for us to end. What what an appropriate reminder for us to take into the Christmas season. Christmas is the dawning of God's eternal plan. For his eternal glory and your eternal joy. You see, at Christmas we see the glorious truth that that God's eternal joy, God's eternal glory, and our eternal joy are inseparable. That God receives joy and glory when we find our joy in him. And it's been that way since before time began. And so this Christmas, fight the temptation to settle for a small Christmas. Refuse to be satisfied. Rejoice in good things. Things like material possessions, uh, friends, family, all those things. But remember to put them in their proper place. When, when Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, he's not referring to those things. He's referring to the immeasurable joy that we have in Christ because God has adopted us, God has freed us, God has guaranteed us eternity, and it's all for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. God, we ask this Christmas that you would help us to avoid the temptation to settle for a small Christmas, that even as the words of Ephesians 1 remind us of how big and vast and how glorious your plan of salvation is, God, that that's where our hearts would go. As we sing Christmas carols, like joy to the world, God, that we would actually remember and and shudder at the incredible joy that comes through the birth of Christ, the incarnation, the fact that God has taken on flesh to dwell among his people, to save his people, to save us. Help us to find eternal, everlasting joy in you for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.